This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, August 3rd, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. National conservatism, known also as conservative nationalism, represents a shift by some conservative intellectuals away from free markets and a diverse cultural landscape and toward industrial policy, protectionism, and a somewhat more homogenous national culture. Cato's Aaron Powell and Reason Magazine managing editor Stephanie Slade discuss the implications of this new conservative nationalism. Yeah, well, I think that this sort of national nationalist conservatism, um, it represents a rejection of, you know, if you think of the conservative movement for many decades, you know, as epitomized by Ronald Reagan as being a three-legged stool, and one of those legs was free markets and free trade. Um, this is a rejection of that, a complete, you know, dismantling of that stool and burning of that leg of the stool. They are generally um, endorsing and calling for more trade protectionism, more tariffs, more in um, what they the, the phrase that's often used is industrial policy. So more tax dollars going to prop up American businesses, including, you know, and especially with a focus on manufacturing and industry, um, because they are they, they tend to be very troubled by the idea of um, America losing its sort of edge in that in that sphere. And they're willing to redistribute wealth as needed. Um to try to resuscitate that sector. Um, so there's a lot of, it's a lot of um, big government um, and government sort of intervention, is, is federal government even intervention into the economy. Is what's driving this then that uh, conservatives have seen a lot of what they've been pitching for the last uh, few decades just not really gelling well with uh, a good portion of Americans? Or is it, is, I, I, I I, I hate to think that this might be a principled stance because I don't think that it is. But uh, what's driving it? Yeah, I do think I do think that you know I don't want to minimize the real phenomenon that some of these people are reacting to. So one of the one of the big personalities at this conference and is sort of part of this movement is J.D. Vance, author of Hillbilly Elegy, um, and he he points out that like the opioid crisis is real and there are people who are dying and um, there are parts of the country geographically speaking where um, entire towns you know the, w sort of one shop towns um, no longer have the one you know plant or or a factory that previously propped up the economy and they're they're suffering they're hurting in those places and so that I think that that is a genuine you know these folks are genuinely reacting to that and to um the pain and sort of the the you know that there's this is the thing is though that conservative my position is that conservatives we talked a lot for many years about creative destruction and about markets being a little bit messy and about the fact that there needs to be, you know, some there are short term loser, uh, losers, even with um, phenomenal, phenomenal economic growth. You still have short term losers, but in long term, everybody is better off if the, if you let the markets work and you let them sort of adjust and let people, um, you know, make sure that people have the incentives to to adjust to changing conditions, we all end up better off. If you put a lot of sort of government, um, if you put an apparatus in place that traps people in these places um, and that tells them that they shouldn't have to adjust to changing market conditions, then they're going to be pretty upset when the economy sort of leaves them behind. And so I think I, I think that the phenomenon is real, but the sort of diagnosis of the problem and and the the prescriptions that are being offered here are, are, are deeply misguided. And I don't want to minimize it either because the, the small town in southwest Missouri where I grew up is fundamentally a different place than it was uh, when I was a kid and not 
uh, not really in a positive direction. Uh, to you, Aaron, uh, what do you see as driving this in terms of, of attitudes or, uh, I guess, a sense that, that people have about where the world is headed and uh, wh- what are conservatives trying to capture? I think first we need to acknowledge how different the people were at this convention. Like we, we want to pull, you know, we talk like we want to pull a single what is this thing out of it. But you have people like John Bolton on the one side and Yuval Levin on the other side who aren't necessarily in agreement on a lot of things. So to some extent, we're, we're kind of grasping around at trying to extract a core from a lot of different things being said. But but you'd, you'd mentioned, you'd asked about the question of whether it was principled. And I think, I think it in fact, at least for a lot of the people there, it is. It's just a set of principles that I find fairly questionable, but it is one that motivates a lot of this thinking and gets to the core of the the economic prescriptions that we were just talking about. So I think part of this motivation, and this is expressed in um, Hazoni, who was the organizer of it in his discussions of nationalism, it came up a lot in Senator Josh Howley's speech. And, and in Howley's, you can see it in some of his earlier essays that he's written elsewhere, is this, this core rejection of what they see as the liberal project that they they think has failed us, has failed people. And so it's failed on the economic side, as we just discussed, but it's also failed on kind of the cultural and identity side. And so they're the underlying motivation. And this is expressed, I think, most clearly in an essay Howley wrote a while back called, I think, America's Epicurean Liberalism, is that for, for years, we have seen the project of America as promoting a certain kind of liberty, which is liberty as self-authorship. It's liberty as like we as individuals get to decide our own values, our own path in life. Our, we get to answer the big questions of meaning and purpose and whatnot for ourselves. And that liberalism, that sort of freedom has led us down this road that has hollowed out the American middle, as Howley refers to it. It's destroyed these small towns. It's created wealth inequalities, it's empowered these cosmopolitan elites as they talk about. And and so the core of it is rejection of that set of values in favor of a sort of traditionalism slash nationalism, which sees freedom and, and the good life as found in commitment to national identity, national purpose, largely religious, and by religious they mean Judeo-Christian values and institutions and to the extent that liberalism has undermined those things or enabled people to seek identity and seek meaning outside of those institutions, it has undermined basically everything that's good about nations and the nation state and has undermined our economics. And so then the economics policy flows from that. that What we need is the federal government to embrace those traditional values and then make sure that we are educated in them through schooling systems, that we're promoting those institutions, and that our economy, businesses, um, the market are working towards those things, that though that's the ultimate goal as opposed to simply economic growth or efficiency or technological advancement. Now, uh, to take 
what Aaron just said and put it back in the realm of policy. You mentioned Josh Hawley uh, of Missouri, and uh, he has some pretty pointed ideas about how social media ought to function in the United States how and how it shouldn't function. Uh, Tucker Carlson, who also spoke at uh, this conference recently, talked about how big business uh, hates your family or something, some, something to that extent where uh, big business is uh, part of some sort of conspiracy that uh, is engaged in advancing this, I guess, leftist project. Not really, I mean, if we're going to engage in some terminological fastidiousness, uh, when Aaron, when you talk about uh, liberalism, you mean uh, liberty and uh, self-ownership and that sort of thing. So uh, with respect to, to policy, though, there th it is particularly troubling for libertarians to see people who describe themselves as conservatives to be advancing uh, policies that are sort of anathema to the idea of uh, basic freedom from trade to uh, immigration to, uh, you know, accessing what the kinds of information that you want to access uh, on the Internet. And I think that's very intentional on their part. In fact, I mean, their their critique, Holly's critique and so on of conservatism and the modern conservative movement, at least pre-Trump, was that it had brought on the, this evil fusionism with libertarians, that, that we had we had kind of incorporated our Epicureanism into the conservative movement and thereby corrupted it somehow. And so they they reject that aspect of conservatism. They think the conservatives went wrong in terms of embracing free markets and everything that goes with it. And, and so the, these particular policies like the, the problems they have with social media, the belief that big tech is needs to be regulated or broken up flow directly from these underlying values, namely that, that big tech is no longer serving the national interest as they happen to define it, that it's it's pushing people more in these uncouth directions of individual pursuits and self-authorship and rejection of these traditional hierarchies and religion and what else, whatever else. Um, and so to the extent that it's doing that, which they then say you know, takes the form of bias against conservatives, shadow banning, playing down search results to sources that don't promote this line, um, it's it's getting in the way of the direction the country ought to go and so therefore ought to be restrained because that's the role of the federal government is to make sure that we are on this national conservative path. And and to be clear, I mean it's it's quite explicit. So Yoram Hazani, the again the organizer of this conference, he said he said, quote, today we declare independence from neoliberalism, from libertarianism, from what they call classical liberalism, from the set of ideas that sees the atomic individual, the free and equal individual, as the only thing that matters in politics. End quote. So this is not we're not, you know, we're not putting anything to them. This is what they're telling us. Uh, Stephanie, is there anything to that, though? I, I can remember uh, Tucker Carlson not long ago, I think it was this month, perhaps, uh, going on his television show and making sort of bold claims that libertarianism was at the core of the of many of the problems that America faced, that the, the Republican Party had been uh, under the sway of libertarians and this was the this was something that needed to be rooted out. Yeah, that seems to be the position that they're taking. Now, uh, but is is there I mean, what animates that that view? Uh, because I you know, I I 
uh, am an unfortunate uh, Twitter person, and uh, in in seeing a lot of the responses from libertarians, it seemed to be saying, "Well, what the hell are you talking about?" Right, right. I mean, I think. Um... Uh, from our perspective, this idea that the libertarians have been ruling the roost in in you know in terms of policymaking and politics in this country is sort of laughable. We we actually all like chuckle to ourselves. Like, you, do you know how long we've been in the wilderness and how hard we've been trying to make even just a little bit of progress to sort of get our ideas out there? Um, but you know, one of the speakers, I, I can't remember now who it was, said something that I thought was very interesting, which was that conservatives made a bargain in which they said. We're going to accept that uh, Judeo-Christian values should be relegated to the private sector, that they should be kept out of the public sphere so that there should be this sort of stark separation between church and state and um, and that we're going to we're going to focus on advancing our values, our our religious values um, only through private means, through persuasion and that cultural change and that sort of thing. And we're going to not bring that into um, into the government. We're going to accept when the liberals, you know, and that that includes the left liberals and the sort of classical liberals, say that that there's no place for that, um, you know, at, at the level of of the government. Um, we're going to accept that and say, well, well, we still have the private sphere. And they said, well, you know what? We've lost ever an ever growing share of the private sphere by doing that. And it turns out we need to go back to the government and put in, reinfuse those values there because otherwise we're just going to lose. We're going to lose the culture, too. Aaron, is there merit to that argument? I think there's there's merit in the sense that the kind of conservatism that Harley or Hazoni represent um, has lost in the private sector. It's lost in the marketplace of ideas. It's lost in the culture. Like the, the culture war was won by the liberals. And um and I don't think I don't think that's going to change. And so they're I think they're right if if they want to reverse that, which I think is at the core of their project, it's not going to happen by just putting their ideas out there because their ideas have largely been rejected by the majority of Americans. And so if they thinking then that they need to turn to the federal government as the way to enforce this is I mean, I, I don't think that's going to work either, but you can see why it's a it's a reasonable position for them to take given their goals. And it is, and they're pretty explicit about it. Hazoni in an essay a while back talked about the the kind of core conceits or the the core ideas, the axioms of liberalism, and and then points out that well, religious faith and traditional values, traditional family, and so on, are compatible with those. I.e., people who are living under those those sets of values, living in a liberal regime, can choose to have religious faith of the kind that he likes and traditional families of the kind that he likes and so on as he says they're not they're not required by liberalism liberalism doesn't require you to embrace those it just enables you to and he sees that as a significant problem and so then yes so then from their perspective taking the federal government and mandating say religious education or putting you know the thumb on the scale for traditional marriage makes a lot of sense. It doesn't make sense from my perspective as a libertarian because I think first people should be free to choose what they want and the kinds of religious faith he wants are good for him potentially, but they're, you know, they're not what I would choose and that sort of pluralism I think is incredibly valuable. Um 
And they also don't make sense because I think they've misdiagnosed the source of the ills that they have identified in society, that a lot of these problems are not in fact the result of liberalism, but are often the result of, of government action or they're the kinds of things that, that could get better if we freed people up more than they even already are now. So it's it's wrong on both of those accounts, but from if you go from their perspective, it's a it's a reasonable place to get to from where they imagine themselves now. It it seems odd to me that uh, these the new nationalists, the conservative nationalists, are both looking backward to a, a kind of America that they like, and also seem to have lost hope in the things that they them many of them uh, have advanced uh, ideas they've advanced over the last few decades, and that seems. Uh, I don't know. It's not contradictory necessarily, but uh, can you thread that needle on their behalf? Is it, is that I mean is that a is that a fair thought though that it's it's both backward looking and and also uh, expresses these huge problems with with where we've been recently? I think that they would say that there was a time when conservatives understood the important things that the sort of conservatives were nationalists in the sense that they are just that they're sort of holding out, you know, or creating this this concept. Um, and that we went off the rails, probably they would say sometimes sometime around the Reagan revolution, maybe they might place place the origin earlier than that. But um, they would say this is when libertarianism sort of infected the conservative cause. And we need to get back to a time before that. We we tried it, it failed. Um, let's go back to where we were before. Um I mean, I'm just I'm not persuaded by this. And I I just do think I ultimately I, I truly think that the change that they're trying to affect has to happen at the cultural level. I mean, it's it's fine to say we should get government involved, but once you've lost the culture, any attempt to use government um, to to sort of go back and use government to to reimpose the culture that you want. Once you've lost it, that's. I mean, I, I wrote in one of my pieces, um, a, a different piece. I wrote in response to the Sora Bamari um, sort of controversy. I said, you know, that is that is tyranny by definition. When a minority tries to use the state um, uh, to to sort of impose something on the majority, that is that is the definition of tyranny. It's bad when the majority tries to use the state to impose its ways on a minority. That's bad as well. But it's actually worse if you think about it. For um, for people who haven't even been able to win at a sort of cultural level, who, whose ideas, as Aaron said, have been essentially rejected by people acting freely to then say, well, you chose wrong, so we're going to make you choose right. I also think that these these halcyon days that they look back to are, to a great extent, rather misleading. I mean, so they they see like there was in the 1950s, we had cultural and national unity. Well, we really didn't. It was just that women's voices were excluded from the national conversation. Blacks and other minorities were being kept down by oppressive laws, by oppressive culture, by racism far more prevalent than it, than it is today. And, and so it was a sort of false consensus. You could, you could sit there as a white male Christian and it looked like everyone was on your side, but that's simply because you weren't hearing from the people who disagreed. And now we are in a world where thankfully, these other people can express themselves and have a voice. And that's we don't want to go back to a world where that is excluded. So that that world didn't really exist. It was it was a false impression, and that makes it an even more dangerous one to long for. It seems that in in criticizing this, there are a lot of uh People in urban centers whose whose lives, as as far as we know, are go, are going just fine, and uh, 
uh, you know, for for people who who live in that kind of world, it probably is easy to reject a lot of what uh, these nationalist conservatives are saying. What are the risks of 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 not grappling with this kind of idea, taking it seriously, and taking the problems of the the communities that are uh, inspiring this kind of of thinking seriously? I think the first risk is that we ought to care about the suffering of other people. And, and so to the extent that we don't recognize it or we don't take their concern seriously or their, their lived experience we, we dismiss, we are not that – we're not exercising the level of compassion that we ought to. I think the second one is simply if these are legitimate concerns and in a lot of cases I think they are legitimate concerns like the, the collapse of these – of small towns, both economically and institutionally, are real problems. We, as classical liberals, as libertarians, think that we have like genuine solutions to those, or that that our ideas will be of value in that debate. But in order to participate in that, and in order to potentially persuade people to look in our direction as opposed to looking in these hardline nationalist directions or these backwards-looking directions, we need to be taking them seriously, speaking to them respectfully, and giving them a reason to listen to us. That doesn't seem to be what uh, Yoram Hazoni and others are advocating. Like He, he doesn't seem to be uh, particularly interested in uh, the civil dialogue. Well, he, he rejects our ideas root and branch as fundamentally mistaken, which then, yes, makes it hard for us to engage in a conversation with him. But, but that doesn't mean we can't have that conversation with all of the people that he claims to be speaking on behalf of. And we do have ideas that speak to the underlying problems that they're raising, right? So, and we've been talking about these ideas in many cases for many years, which is part of what's frustrating about this is it's, it's there's they're sort of uh, a sense that they want, they want it to... They want to. They want to act like they have discovered these problems, and it's like you know we've been talking about how housing prices in urban centers are are out of control in part because of you know urban policy and you know zoning and and height building height restrictions and all these other regulatory issues that makes it then hard for people in small towns to go to a big city if they wanted to where there are more opportunities. We've been talking about how starting a business in this country is harder than it should be due to occupational licensing. We've been talking about all you know we've been talking about why the the sort of student debt problem is is just sort of um, driven by the federal government's loan system and sort of the, its inter, you know intervention in that part of what could otherwise be I think a functioning market and how that's you know driving and you know motivating people to take on way more debt than they should and and spend it in ways that is not that are not particularly smart which then makes a you know the new generation of young adults feel like they're starting from behind you know they, they talk the, one of the visuals is we feel like we're starting from from a disadvantage from behind the starting line. Um, all these things are, we can acknowledge that, that they're all true and we can say, and we've been talking about how government policies created these problems in the first place. And so instead of going even farther in that direction, let's pull back and see, you know, what, what are the causes of these problems and how can we address those? Stephanie Slade is managing editor of Reason Magazine. Aaron Powell is editor of Libertarianism.org. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.